All right, turn in your Bibles to Psalm 7. As we've done before, during the, uh, during the summer, we're going to be working through some of the psalms. And so this week is Psalm 7. If you're using one of the chair Bibles, it's going to be on page 450. One of the things that we as a culture do around Thanksgiving time, besides eating, is we take time to give thanks. This is in movies in our culture. I'm sure some of you do this in your families where you take time or have in the past done where you take time and everyone says what they're thankful for. And usually... We thank God for family, for means of provision, for for work, and for having the food that you're about to eat on the table. Sometimes we thank God for his blessings, and sometimes if we're on our game, we'll thank God for his love. I've never been at a Thanksgiving table where somebody thanked God for his righteousness. I've never experienced that, and I don't know if many have. Unless maybe they're really into Psalm 7. But the very last verse of this psalm does exactly that. It thanks God for his righteousness. So if you look at the beginning of verse 17, I will give to the Lord the thanks due to his righteousness. Now, when I first read that, and maybe you're like me in this, I wondered, what does it mean to thank God for his righteousness? And why should I be thanking God for his righteousness? And that's what the rest of Psalm 7 does. Psalm 7 shows us why we should thank God for his righteousness. And as we look at Psalm 7, I want us to grow in our knowledge of who God is and why he acts the way that he acts. And when we better understand how God works and how he acts and why he acts, it will help us to have a bigger and better understanding and love for God. And so today I want us to explore why we should give, thank, give the Lord the thanks due his righteousness. So let's look at point number one there. And again, these are reasons we should thank God for his righteousness. First point there, verses one and two, God protects and saves his people. Follow along as I read verses one and two. O Lord, my God, in you do I take refuge. Save me from all my pursuers and deliver me, lest like a lion they tear my soul apart, rending it in pieces with none to deliver. As we see in the superscription at the beginning of Psalm 7, this psalm was probably written by David. And if you read the life of David, you know 
that many times in his life he was pursued by his enemies. The life of a would-be king and then the life of a king is not a safe one. And here, David talks about his need of being saved from his pursuers and his enemies. And notice in verse 2 how he understands the depth of his problem, the depth of his need. Lest like a lion they tear my soul apart, rending it in pieces with none to deliver. So again, one of the beautiful things about psalms is the poetic nature of psalms and these wonderful metaphors. And so here's this metaphor. David the king, he's not the lion in this one. (laughs) His enemies are the lion, making him the prey of the lion. And normally, lion versus food of the lion, the lion wins. And it's not really much of a fight because it's a lion. David is the small animal, the lamb, that will get torn to shreds by the powerful lion. Now we know from history that David was a warrior. David was a fighter. But in these times of trouble, in these times where his enemies are on him like a lion on a little sheep, He doesn't say, well, I'll fight harder. He says, O Lord, my God, in you do I take refuge. Save me from all my pursuers and deliver me. So what does that have to do with God's righteousness? The reason that David runs to God for protection is because God is a keeper of his promises and he promises to protect his people. God is dependable and that's why David runs to him. And the reason that God is dependable is because of his righteousness. He is not going to tell you one thing and then do another because that would not be righteous. He's not going to make a promise he cannot keep because of his righteousness. And so whenever we face the hard times, you know, thankfully, unlike David, we're not usually pursued by enemies. But just like David, in those hard times, in those difficult times, In the times where we feel attacked, we can run to God and take refuge in Him. And we can depend on that protection because of His righteousness. Second reason we thank God for His righteousness is in point number two there, we can trust His judgment and discipline on us. Look at verses three to five. O Lord, my God, if I have done this, if there is wrong in my hands, if I have repaid my friend with evil or plundered my enemy without cause, 
Let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it, and let him trample my life to the ground and lay my glory in the dust. Selah. I find verses 3 to 5 completely fascinating. It is common in the Psalms for David or another of the psalmists to cry out to God to be delivered from attack, to be delivered from justice, to be shown mercy. But here, David invites justice on himself. Look at the beginning of verse 3. If I have done this, if, if I have actually committed this sin, if there is wrong in my hands, if I have mistreated a friend, if I have attacked my enemy without cause, if I have sinned against you or against someone, then I readily welcome, not just accept, I welcome your judgment and discipline on me. That's where verse 5 comes in. Let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it. Let him trample my life to the ground and lay my glory in the dust. Let my enemy knock me out if I have sinned. Why in the world would you say that? (laughs) Wouldn't you say, hey God, if I've done this, let me get away with it. (laughs) Too many amens from this side, okay? (laughs) Why welcome? Again, not just accept, but why welcome God's judgment? Because if God is righteous, his justice and his discipline is perfect. We can trust God to be impartial and fair in his discipline of us. So when we belong to God, God will discipline us for our good and his glory. And so David is saying, if if these attacks from my enemies are disciplined because of something I have done, then I welcome it. Because he knows, because of God's righteous character, God does not make mistakes and God is completely fair and just in dealing out discipline to his children. And so because of his righteousness, there is this huge humility found in David in his understanding of God's discipline. He doesn't say, God, this is not fair. He says, it's sort of like this. If you're saying one thing and God is saying another, you are wrong. (laughs) Too often we assume that when we disagree with God, we're right. But if he's righteous, he's not, he's always right. And so David is modeling for us this deep humility That if God says something different than I say, I'm the one who's wrong. And I welcome his discipline, which is meant to be for my good and to bring me back to God. You see, discipline 
Discipline is, the ju- is justice towards God's people. Right? So, so in the New Testament, we, t- say, we see that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Okay? So we don't experience judgment in the same way that an unbeliever does. We don't experience condemnation. We do, as believers in Jesus, experience discipline. And discipline is to bring us to repentance so that we can restore that relationship with God. And so David is showing us, because of God's righteous character, we need to welcome his discipline into our lives. Because it's for our good. It's for our growth. And it's to bring us to repentance to restore that relationship with God. And so not only... Not only is there a purpose to God's discipline, sometimes we can accept that, but it's not only a purpose, it's a good purpose. God is doing a good thing in your life when he is disciplining you. And so you can welcome it with humility as David does here, but only because he is righteous. And because he's righteous, he never makes a mistake in discipline and justice. Number three, so why should we thank God for his righteousness? Because God upholds the righteous. Let's look at verses six to eight. Arise, O Lord, in your anger. Lift yourself up against the fury of my enemies. Awake for me. You have appointed a judgment. Let the assembly of the peoples be gathered about you. Over it return on high. The Lord judges the peoples. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and according to the integrity that is in me. Here we see a continuation of verses 3 and 5 where, God, where David is actually welcoming God to be the judge that he is. So verse 8, the Lord judges the peoples. Judge me, O Lord. He is welcoming judgment. But here, these verses, the reason is slightly different. So in verses 3 to 5, it's because of the good nature of, his, of the, God's discipline. But here, he welcomes judgment because God stands up for those who are righteous. See, God does not mix up the innocent and the guilty. Again, because of his righteous Nature. He never makes a mistake between someone who is innocent and someone who has done wrong and is wicked. And so, he upholds the righteous person, the person who follows him. So we see at the end of verse 8, Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness. David is saying that he belongs to God. He is a righteous person in that sense. That he is one of God's people, and he is calling God to establish and uphold him and to recognize his innocence in this case. So we thank God for his righteousness because he never calls the innocent guilty. And we see in verses 9 and 11 
that his judgment is always fair and right. Oh, let the evil of the wicked come to an end, and may you establish the righteous, you who test the minds and hearts. Oh, righteous God, my shield is with God who saves the upright in heart. God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. Now, I think we would be good to meditate on that last sentence of God is a God who feels indignation every day. That all wickedness is an affront and a rebellion against God. But I want to focus on, in verse 9 there, may you establish the righteous, you who test the minds and hearts. See, we recognize that God knows everything you do and think and feel. So there the mind and the heart is dealing with the inner person and the speech and the thoughts and the intents and the motives. And our God is a God who searches the hearts and the minds of all people. He knows perfectly what you have done and perfectly even what you have thought. And so he is perfectly able to uphold the upright in heart and to judge the wicked. Again, God never confuses the two. God never calls the guilty innocent and the innocent guilty. God never makes those mistakes. I'm sure we could all think of a court case that we have followed in the news or maybe even been involved with where our court system failed. God's court system never fails. See, the certainty that we could never get from any judge or court on earth is found in God and in God alone because he is righteous. There's no question, there's no wondering, will God get it right this time? Because God gets it right every single time. So maybe someone has hurt you, someone has done evil against you. And maybe the people around you and our court system, our legal system, missed it. And mistook the guilty for the innocent. You can know that God gets it right every single time. Because he is righteous. And he knows the thoughts and the motives of all people. He is the perfect judge. You know, in our society today, they talk about judge shopping. (laughs) And in one sense, we understand why people do this, but in one sense, it shows a giant flaw in our system. That justice is not blind, because if, if it were, you would not shop for the judge you wanted. So you go into our legal system and you're like, is the judge on my side? Or did the other side do a better job shopping? There's no judge shopping with God. (laughs) 
And so you know that he will be true and right and just. And you can know that. There's certainty there. Fourth reason that we thank God for his righteousness is that God fights the wicked. Start in verse 12. If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. Verses 12 and 13 present what is actually a pretty common metaphor in your Bible of God as a warrior. Now, God doesn't actually have a sword. (laughs) He doesn't actually have a bow and arrow. But the picture is of God is a warrior ready to fight. His sword is sharp. His bow is bent, meaning it is ready to fire. And he even lit the arrows on fire. (laughs) This is a picture of God going to war for his people. But notice the circumstances in which God gets ready for battle. God is not constantly on the war path. There is a specific condition where God will prepare for battle. Look at the beginning of verse 12. If a man does not repent. What this shows us is two things. One, God rightly judges those who deserve judgment. Those who do not repent will face God's judgment. But it also shows us the other side, that if someone does repent, they will not face the wrath of God. So I first want to look at the person who does not repent. Verse 14 says this, Behold, the wicked man conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief and gives birth to lies. The wicked man that God is talking about here, the one who does not repent, is is not sinning by accident. There is, within them, you notice the pregnant imagery, (laughs) the sin is inside them and comes out of them. They are sinners by nature and by choice. In one sense, David is showing us that the people who receive God's judgment and justice are fully deserving of it. These are not people who don't know any better. These are people who do not repent and who are purposeful in their wickedness. Because again, God is a righteous judge. He would not punish those who are not wicked. 
But in verses 15 to 16, we also see that his judgment of them is fair and perfect. So the wicked man in verse 15, he makes a pit, digging it out, and falls into the hole he has made. His mischief returns upon his own head, and on his own skull his violence descends. Here is a picture of the punishment fits the crime. I love verse 15. The man is digging a pit, and then he falls right into it. In one sense, his judgment is experiencing the consequences of his actions. And that demonstrates that when God does execute justice on the wicked, it is perfectly good, fair, and right. The punishment fits the crime. It is not cruel and unusual. It is just and fair. I want to go back to verse 12, though to talk about this idea, if a man does not repent, God will wet the sword. God is setting up a condition, and because he is righteous, he will live by that condition. So again, if someone does repent, God will put away his sword. To Stretch that metaphor a little bit. So God is setting that condition on himself. And in fact, in a, probably a more familiar verse in 1 John, we read this, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just. Same word as righteous. So even 1 John connects confession to God's righteousness. So if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, or faithful and righteous, to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is another reason that we thank God for his righteousness. Because he has told us, he has told you, if you confess your sins, you will be forgiven. And because he is righteous, he cannot break that promise. So today, if you confess your sins, every sin, no matter how bad and no matter how many, will be forgiven because God is a righteous God. If you are a believer in Jesus and you've done that already, you were able to do that because of the righteousness of God. Your forgiveness was sealed and was certain because of the righteousness of God. When God makes a promise, he keeps it. Not for a little bit, but forever. And so we turn, lastly, we come back to verse 17. now that we've seen God's righteousness in action, we culminate where we began in verse 17. I will give thanks to the Lord, sorry, I will give to the Lord the thanks due his righteousness, and I will sing praise 
to the name of the Lord Most High. You see, as we understand his righteousness and how God works out of that righteousness to protect us, to stand up for justice, to judge the wicked, and to acquit the innocent, and to offer forgiveness through repentance. This culminates in the praise and the thanks of verse 17. I will give to the Lord the thanks due to his righteousness, and I will sing praise to the name of the Lord Most High. So let's apply this to our daily lives. First, because of his righteousness, we can rest in the fact that God will judge the wicked and the unjust. Justice will be done because God is the righteous judge and it will always be correct. Number two, humble yourself under the good discipline of God. Because God is righteous, any discipline that he gives to us is for our good. We, we can trust him. He's not, he's not going to trick you. And he's not going to be cruel to you because that would be unrighteous. And so we can trust his discipline and come under it in humility. Number three, I think one of the, the large parts of this psalm is be confident knowing that God fights for you. This is one of the great pictures in your Bible, one of many, where God is a warrior for you. God is a warrior for his people. It should remind us of Romans, where it says, if God is for us, who can be against us? He's for us as the mighty warrior who cannot be defeated. And fourthly, we thank and praise God for his righteousness. I want to close with a quote from one commentator. The righteous rejoice in the righteousness of God. God's righteous judgment affects both the wicked and the righteous. The wicked fall, whereas the righteous experience deliverance in God's acts of judgment. The attribute of God's righteousness is what he does or will do in behalf of his own. He is the victorious God who triumphs over evil and will avenge his children. Despair is thus transformed into hope, and hope is expressed in the singing of praise to the Lord. Let's pray.